Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Removing the give up option. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to begin. If you have a Bible, you can go to Isaiah chapter 40, 28 through 31. And I'll read that here in just a moment. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, he that endureth unto the end, the same will be saved. And that endurance there, if you'll check out the context, right before that, he's talking about wars, rumors of wars, famines and pestilences that would happen at the time of the end. And I used to think that Jesus was meaning being able to endure the wars, the famines, the pestilences and earthquakes. But if you look at the context, right before he said, if you can endure to the end, he gives two verses on being offended. And it dawned on me one day that what Jesus is dealing with is if you can serve the Lord and prevent yourself from being offended and falling into offense and quitting because you're offended at people, at a church, at your job and getting angry and mad, you'll make it to the time of the end because offense is going to be a big thing at the time of the end. Have you ever seen so many people that get offended over everything? Politicians get offended over this. Businesses get offended over that. People suing each other because they're offended. It's really, really ridiculous. The Greek word offense is scandalon, and it's the bait of a trap that is set for an animal. And so an offense is actually geared spiritually to set you up and to entrap you with something, an opinion that you can't get out of. But having said that, we need to take, I'm going to say this, we just need to totally take the quit option or the give up option off the table. When we enter into a marriage, don't let divorce be an option. When you're raising your kids, confess they're going to be saved. Don't let it be an option. One of them is going to be lost. So we've got to get off of the idea that we have an option to stop and quit and just throw, throw the towel in. Isaiah chapter 40, 28 through 31. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God... The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In this text, it talks about young people. And it's really odd because it talks about how the youth would even become weary. The word youth in the text in Hebrew here is the word ne'ar, and it means infant to adolescence. Uh, it's translated in, the, in some translations as a boy or a child or a damsel or a man. Not in this text, but that word is. The word young men, however, is a different Hebrew word that can mean youth or one of a more mature age. It could be a teenager. It could be a college-age person. That's how we would interpret it today. So in other words, he's saying here something really interesting, that it's going to become so wearisome on people that it's not just going to be older people that's going to say, man, I can't take this anymore. It's going to be youth. It's going to be teenagers. It's going to be, what, no, I'm, I'm going to use, he didn't say college and career, but that's the age that the word deals with here. Then it said that they would utterly fall. I looked up this word fall. It's the Hebrew word kashol, and it means to stagger, to waver, to get weak in the legs, or to fear something that makes you feel weak or afraid. And then it says they will fall because they have become weary or they have become faint. Now, you can become weary physically, but you can also become weary mentally, and you can become weary spiritually. In other words, weariness is not just a thing of the flesh. Weariness is the thing of the spirit and also the mind. 
The Bible talks about don't be weary and faint in your mind. So in other words, people fainting means becoming weak, becoming weak to the point that you don't think you can continue in your walk with God. You can't continue in the level that you're at. Now, I want to say this because I believe this with all of my heart. If you were to ask me, among Christians in general, what will be the main battle at the time of the end? I believe the main battle that most people are going to deal with who really love God is a battle of weariness. And the Bible says it this way, becoming weary in well-doing. So for the next few moments, I'm going to key up on three things that make people weary. Three things that the enemy will use. Y'all, excuse me, my nose is stopped up. Hallelujah. <laughs> so if I'm not going like this, you know, hallelujah. I'm not doing the swimmer this morning. I'm trying to get it all going here. Uh, weariness is going to be where men and women are going to have difficulty. They're going to become tired of the routine and tired of dealing with what they're dealing with. So what I'll do, I'm going to pick three things that I felt like the Lord has showed me that if you do these three things, it's going to lead to you, lead you to want to quit and want to give up. Everybody say this with me. Number one is the spirit of isolation. The spirit of isolation. What is the spirit of isolation? The spirit of isolation is being alone by yourself too long to where you are isolated from people. Isolated from people that love you, that care about you, or that in, are interested in you. And one of the worst things that you can have happen to you is for you to get upset at people and shut people off and then go start going to your room and lock the door and young people, especially you, or start just being totally, completely by yourself. Now, why is isolation dangerous? I'm going to give you the story of a prophet. Elijah was a prophet that ministered in the time of Ahab and Jezebel. They were known as the most wicked leaders up till that point that Israel ever had. Jezebel was so angry at the prophets that she would have them arrested. And the Bible says she was beheading them. So all the people who really loved God, you know what they were doing? Read your Bible. They were hiding in caves. Nobody wanted to be seen in public. Nobody wanted to prophesy in the name of the Lord except one man, and that was Elijah. Now, when Elijah challenged the false prophets, he took 450 of them to the top of Mount Carmel. And actually, there was a total of 850 with the prophets of the grove. So imagine 850 prophets, false prophets, standing against one man of God. A man told me one time and said, boy, he was outnumbered. I said, no, one man with God is the majority anytime. Because <laughs> if God be for you, who can be against you? So he goes up there and he rebuilds an altar, which is not an easy thing to do, picking up 12 large stones. And then the Bible says he prays a 63-word prayer. Now, that's in the English translation. And he calls the fire down out of heaven. He's praying with an unction and an anointing. Then there's been a drought for 42 months, and he goes to the top of Carmel, faces the Mediterranean Sea, and he puts his head down between his legs, and he begins to intercede. That's like we call that the birth position of prayer. And seven times he has to pray till he sees a cloud locking into a man's hand. Folks, are been a cloud in the country for 42 months. Now he says, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Then he turns around, think about this, and he outruns 
He outruns the horses of Ahab and the chariots of Ahab. A horse can run his average speed of 35 miles an hour. If Elijah's outrunning them, that means he's running at 36. So in other words, the prophet is running approximately 36 miles an hour through the, the plains of Megiddo to get to the city of Jezreel. Now, I do not know about you, but when you're out running chariots and you're building altars and you're having a prayer meeting, you're going to get tired. So he gets to Jezreel and Jezebel, the queen, finds out that he has slain 850 false prophets and she sends him a word. Tell him before the sun comes up, I'm going to have his head. Now, I would think, you would too, that a man who just called fire out of heaven that consumed our altar would be able to say, you go tell Jezebel, I'm about, to, I'm about to consume her and I'm calling down fire on her head. She better be the one leaving the palace because God's going to scorch her in about five minutes. All right, I would think, I would think that a man like this would do that. Do you know what he does? He runs. Now from Jezreel to Mount Horeb, there's a difference. It depends on how he went, is a good 80 to 110 miles. He goes to Mount Horeb. He sits under a juniper tree. He then says to God, kill me. Now, this is humorous for two reasons. Number one, why would God want to kill a man that he's got a chariot of fire waiting on to pick him up and transport him? Why would God want to kill a man that one day will be one of the two witnesses in the tribulation? God had great plans for this man. You better thank God for the prayers he didn't answer. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, God, I wish I was dead. Oh, God, I wish I wasn't even linen. Wouldn't you just like it if God answered all your prayers and you said, I wish I was dead? Bam. <laughs> what happened? Well, she wanted to die. God killed her. I mean, what if the prophet of God, what if God would have killed the man? He would have missed every future prophetic opportunity in his life. Here's the problem. He was too alone. He was isolated. Here's the verse. This is in the Amplified, 1 Kings 19, 14. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. Now, that's the condition the country's in. And I, I only am left, and they seek to destroy my life. Can I ask you a question? Has anybody ever felt maybe with the people you've got to work with or the school people that you've got to go to college or school with, has anybody ever felt, I must be the only real Christian around this place? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. Come on, be honest with me. I must be the only person that has any kind of ethics in this whole bunch around here. You can go through a time where you'll feel like that you're the only person. And here's what, here's what I wanna tell you. He got depressed. This prophet got depressed because he got tired of being isolated. Now, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze this situation, but it's very practical because I can put a person in the same situation this man was in, having a prayer meeting, calling the fire of God down, praying seven times for intercession, outrun the horses of Ahab, going another 18 miles, 118 miles to Mount Horeb. The guy is totally slap wore out. When the angel shows up, he's sleeping. He feeds him and lets him sleep. Then he wakes him up, feeds him and lets him sleep. What the guy needed was he needed to get alone and simply rest. He needed to spend time in the presence of God. And he finally goes up. Well, help me preach here, somebody. He finally goes up to a cave or a cliff in a rock. 
You want something cool? I told, I never will forget, I told Pastor Jensen this, flying in a plane together, and it's called, the message was called, There is a Place by Me. Now, if he heard me preach this right now on the internet, he's going to preach it next week in Free Chapel, what I'm about to say, okay? So if you hear, Pastor, listen. In the book of Exodus, God says to uh, Moses, if you'll come up by me, there is a place in the cleft of the rock. Remember that? Moses goes into the rock. God puts his hand over him, then removes his hand, and he sees the glory of God from God's backside. Do you remember that? And if you'll read the story, the mountain is quaking like an earthquake, and the lightning is flashing, and God is there. Now, you know where that happened? If you'll go read your Bible, Mount Horeb. Do you know where Elijah went to when he wanted to hear from God? Read your Bible, Mount Horeb. Do you know where he went in your Bible? The cleft of the rock. The same one Moses went to. He's up there ready for God to shake the place and see his glory. You ready for what the Bible said? And the earth shook, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And the fire fell, but God wasn't in the fire. And the wind came by and ripped the rocks, but God wasn't in the wind. See, Moses, who's the meekest man on the earth, he gets the fire and the lightning and the earthquake on Mount Horeb in the cleft of the rock. The boldest guy on earth wants the fire and he wants the earthquake, but God's not in it. And the Bible said, but there came a still small voice. (laughs) Woo! So Moses got the manifestation, but Elijah got the still small voice. But talk to me, somebody, he knew where to go. He knew that when he got depressed, preach. He knew when he got depressed. He knew when he got discouraged. He knew when he was about to quit that there was a place that his mentor went years ago up on a mountain to get alone with God. And if he could find that place that Moses found and you read your Bible, he came back and told Jezebel, the dogs are going to eat you, woman. And he started prophesying and ended up going to heaven in a chariot of fire. But don't miss my point. The problem with the man of God was he was always isolated. He wasn't around other people. He's down at a brook by himself and the birds are feeding him. And he goes up and he goes and travels all the way to see a widow woman and feed her. Then he comes back down here. He's alone, one man on top of Mount Carmel. You see, God, say this with me out loud. God built me for relationships. God did not create you to be an isolationist. You are not made. Can I tell you something? Lord, I feel led to tell you this. I have discovered what the Bible has said all along, that the greatest force in the world is love. Can I say, suggest something to you? It is impossible for a person to resist real love. I don't care what condition they are. They can say they hate you even after you say, I love you. But if they know that you really care about them and you really love Love them and you're concerned about them, it is impossible for a human being to resist love because God made you, created you to be geared toward relationships of other people. And so the Bible tells us that the man is all alone. Now watch this. Adam is alone. Genesis 2.18. And God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Look, how many, how many cows can you moo at? How many cats can you pet? How many dogs? can sleep beside you, Adam. How many lions can you pet their mane? After a while, you want a warm body. Come on, I'm preaching now. I'll give you my verse in a minute to verify what I'm saying. Jacob, the Bible said, was alone. And it said, 
All night long, he wrestled a man. See, I've discovered when young people lock themselves up in their room and all they do is stay on their phone or their laptop and they're just watching pictures or images or TV, they're alone. And see, Jacob wrestled when he was alone. You will not wrestle a lot as long as people are talking to you. You won't wrestle a lot as long as you're with a group of people. You won't wrestle as much spiritually or emotionally or physically, whatever the case may be, if you're around the church folks. When you are alone is when the enemy plays on the mind. When you're alone is when all of your wrestling takes place. So in other words, what I'd like to say to you is when Jacob was alone, he wrestled a man to the breaking of day. All right. Well, good thing about this wrestling match, he came up different. Hey, <laughs> he came up with a limp, but he came up with a name change. He's God said, I'm going to call you Israel because you have prevailed with God. Moses was told that he could not bear the burden of the people alone. Numbers chapter 11, verse 17. So God took the spirit of Moses, his anointing, transferred it on 70 elders so he wouldn't have to do what? bear the burden alone. Jesus, when he was alone, Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four, by himself was tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. What does that mean? It means the enemy knew where to hit him. He knew when to hit him. He knew that for 40 days, the Lord would be by himself. He comes and tries to make Jesus doubt that he's the son of God. So there is this spiritual principle, and I want you to get this in your mind, that it's not good for people to have to be alone. They've got to have at least one good friend they can trust. You're going to have less battles to fight when you're around people who think the way you do and talk the way you do. You see, people are going to do one or two things, make withdrawals from you or make deposits into your life. The people that are always pulling on you to make withdrawals on you, wanting things, wanting stuff, it gets stressful and fatigue after a while. People, though, that you're around that always have a word to say, always have an encouraging word to say, those are the kind of people that you like to be with because you know if you're having a bad day, they're not going to add bad to bad. You ever had anybody walk in and just, you, they knew you were having a bad day, you knew you were having a bad day, and they say, Having a bad day? Okay. So, remember what I'm saying. The spirit of isolation can cause such depression that Elijah wanted to take his life. He wanted God to take his life because he was so depressed. So, God had to encourage him, refire him, recharge him. And that's when, if you'll read your Bible, he ended up getting a student by the name of Elisha to follow him around until he was transported to heaven. So he teamed up with another person. Somebody say, teaming up with another person. All right, let's go to number two. The second thing that can cause a person to want to give up is what I call the spirit of shame. Shame in Hebrew, the word in shame in Hebrew, which is found in the King James translation, it means to be dishonored, to be disgraced, or to be reproached by others. Now, in the Bible, there are individuals who did things that, and I'll be honest with you. Can I just tell you the honest truth? Yes, I'm going to be honest with you. Absolutely. I think if I were writing the Bible, I would have left some stories out. <clears throat> okay. Genesis, Moses wrote about this, but he's writing about the history of how nations got started. So we had to tell the story. Lot leaves Sodom. Lot is called a righteous man. He leaves Sodom. God says his soul was vexed every day. 
His wife dies on the way out. He's got two young daughters that are not married and they're virgins. They go up on a mountain and the book of Jasher says that the daughters thought the whole world had been destroyed. They thought all the men were gone and they had to carry on the name of the seed because they thought all the men were dead. They say that's why they did this. They get their father drunk and they have relations with him and one has a baby through him. Now this is, look, this is the grossest thing that's in the Bible. You have to admit this. I mean, Lot would be arrested in some places today. Come on, preach. Then they get him drunk again. I've always told people, that's one reason I don't drink. Your clothes come off. Is it? Do you want me to go to the Bible and show you where this happened? No, it's the weirdest thing. People start drinking and getting, getting crazy. And the first thing they do, they start undressing themselves. You know, can I prove it? Noah, the Bible says, planted a vineyard, got drunk and took his clothes off and was laying naked and his boys had to go in and cover him up. It got awful quiet around here just now. <laughs> so anyway, that's a side note. I, that wasn't in the notes. It just come out somehow right there. Now, what was I talking about? Because I'm laughing now. When I start laughing, I forget what I'm saying. Yeah, so if you go into the Bible and you begin to study, let me just stay on subject, and you start studying, you'll discover that people who love God did really crazy things. Now, David in Psalms 55, 12 through 14, he's the king. Everybody knows him. He's talking about his sin that he did. And I'll tell you about that. Well, let me just tell you what happened. Uh, all the kings were going to battle, and David was by himself, and there are no men there. All the men are gone to fight. A woman's bathing on the roof. Now, don't think she's weird. She's gone through her monthly period. And according to the law of Moses, she's supposed to wash herself ceremonially after a certain number of days. Now, the weird thing about David, to show you how weird you can think, you, a woman was to wash herself when she could get pregnant, when she ovulates. So in other words, David knows what she's doing. She's on the roof bathing herself, not to be, she's not some kind of, you know, they're not voyeurism here. She's not trying to get the king's attention. In fact, if you go to Israel like I've been, you'll discover that Mount Sion, Mount Zion, that David's palace was on top of the hill and every other house had a flat roof all the way down. So literally the king at any time could stand on a roof and see anything going on on everybody's rooftop. She's on a rooftop. So she's cleansing herself. Now, the weird thing about the whole story is he knows if he has any relationship with her, she can get pregnant, but he does it anyway. Now, when she becomes pregnant with David's baby, if you've never heard the story, he says, man, I'm in serious trouble here. She's married, got a husband, but he's one of my soldiers. So he brings the man home, tries to get him drunk. There we go again, people getting drunk. And uh, then he wants him to take his clothes off and go in with his wife and pretend like she, he got her pregnant. Well, it didn't work. He slept outside for two days. So then he says, what am I going to do? And then David says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put him on the front line of the battle and kill him. Now, anybody with their right mind would have known. Now, just watch how crazy this is. Anybody in their right mind would have known, number one, Uriah has been to battle for two months. He hasn't been with his wife to get her pregnant. Number two, anybody in Jerusalem would have known Uriah did not go home. He slept at the door of the palace for two nights, meaning he didn't have relations with his wife. So even by David killing the husband, it's not going to help anything at all because somebody's going to figure this out. And somebody figured it out. So she's pregnant. Uriah dies. He comforts her and then he marries her. 
So then most of you know the story of what happened after that about him being approached by Nathan and really the, the serious sin. Now, I'm not under, listen, I am not underestimating the adultery, but if you read the Bible, the sin was the murder of the husband. God became angry at him and it cost him four of his sons because he slew the blood of an innocent man. That's a lot. I, ha I could preach a 30 minute message on that and show you the most interesting twist in that story. All right. David said this, for it was not an enemy that reproached me then I could have borne it. Neither was, the, neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was you, a man of my equal, my guide, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together uh, and walked into the house of God in company. Now, what happens is this. David says, what's hard for me to deal with. Now, he's talking about after the sin. It's all been known. Everybody knows it. Bathsheba's had the baby. He says this. It's hard for me to comprehend this, but the people who turned against me were not my enemies because they're already my enemies. See, I've learned something about enemies. People who don't like me, there's nothing I can do to make them like me if they already don't like me. But my friends who love me don't need my explanations. If somebody criticizes me, they don't need me to counter the criticism because they love me and they'll say it's nobody's business. So here's what David is doing. David is saying, this is what's messing me up, man. All my friends, he says it, I went to the tabernacle with. All the friends I've worshiped with have now turned totally, completely against me. He said, I could handle this if it was the Philistines. I could handle this if the Amalekites were saying, well, that old David, blah, blah, blah about him. But he said, this is the thing that bothers me. Now, let me show you how shame comes in. And a lot of you sitting out there will be able to relate to these stories of what I'm saying. David had shame with Bathsheba having the baby and the whole kingdom finding out. Samson had shame when he broke his Nazarite vow, had his hair cut, which was part of the vow, and his eyes were gadged out and the Philistines were mocking him. He's in shame. He's, he's like an animal. He's in a prison house of the Philistine grinding milk. Number three, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now read the wording of the Bible, caught in the act. This means that someone sent word, these two are in the bed together at this guy's house. These religious people go into the door. I'm telling you, this is what it meant, into the bedroom and yank this woman out of the bed, probably just allow, I don't know if they even let her, allowed her to get close. I don't even know how many, much clothes she had on. She's in the act. And then they drag her out in the street, screaming at her. They take her to the temple where there's a rock pile where they want to stone her. Now you talk about shame. Everybody along the path now knows what this woman has done. That's shame. Then we find that Peter says, I'll not deny you. And he denies the Lord and ends up cursing the Lord three times. All right, that's shame. He's so embarrassed, he leaves weeping when Jesus sees him and realizes what he's done. Then there's a man in the Bible named John Mark, a young man. John Mark was on a missionary trip in the book of Acts with Barnabas and Paul. He couldn't hack it. Paul got mad and said, send that boy home. He's not a missionary. He can't take this. And Barnabas got so upset at Paul for sending John Mark home. Barnabas left Paul and Paul had to get a new companion by the name of Silas to travel with him. Now, how can you, let, let me say this. Can you imagine, can you imagine you're a young man 
and you've been called to go with the greatest apostle that's ever lived. And you're saying, dude, you're not going to believe what happened to me. I'm going on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas. What? Dude, you're young, man. How'd you get to do that? Hey, when you're good, you're good. Hey, what can I say? You know, can you, I'm talking about how kids would say today. Now, then about two months later, you're home. And everybody says, hey, how'd the mission trip go? You got your head hanging down. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. You know, and then they find out you've been sent home. So the greatest missionary in the land has looked at you and said, you can't cut it. How would that make you feel? Can I tell you, I'd be totally embarrassed. And what does embarrassment lead to? Embarrassment leads to shame. And what does shame lead to? Condemnation. You, when you go into shame, you'll start feeling like you're not even worthy to pray. You're not worthy to minister. You're not worthy to sing. You're not worthy to be in God's presence. So the enemy desires for everybody here to live in a spirit of shame because he knows the shame brings condemnation. And the Bible says if our hearts condemn us, we pray and don't even believe that God is answering our prayer. But if our hearts condemn us not, we believe we have access. Boy, I feel something today. And we have confidence in what we're praying. Now, how does God solve the shame game? Whoa, that's the title of a message. Somebody tweet that. Peristone preaching on the shame game. How does God handle the shame game? All right, ready? Now, this is what, pardon me, this is my Tennessee expression, blows my mind about God. Bathsheba is Uriah's wife. The husband's been murdered by David, right? David has totally repented. This is an important point. David's come open. David has admitted he's wrong. David has repented and God loves repentance. So what God does is the baby born to Bathsheba dies after it's born. That was the baby through the affair. But then Bathsheba has another baby named Solomon. Guess what? It says, ready? Solomon, whom God loved. Oh my goodness. Now I'm looking at this. Now I'm thinking, let's, let's just think from our New Testament understanding. I'm thinking, hey, God ain't never going to give that woman another baby. I mean, everybody in the kingdom knows what's happened. Husband has died. She got set up. Okay. We understand that. But no, God ain't going to give that one. No, no. But what does God do? God turns around, takes the very, oh, somebody ought to be hooping right now and hollering. Somebody who's been through something ought to really be shouting right now. And says, I'm going to take this baby born to you, woman, and make him one of the wisest kings that Israel has ever had. And Shalomon or Solomon means chosen of God. You're going to miss a good place to shout and praise God if you don't do it right now. Then... How does God handle the shame of Samson? His hair grows out, which was the Nazarite vow. He cries out to God, remember me. And check this out in Hebrews 11 and also Judges. He kills more enemies at the end of his ministry than he did his entire life. Who said the rest of your life can't be the best of your life? Somebody tweet that right now. The rest of your life can be the best of your life. Now, how did God handle the woman caught in the act of adultery? They're going to stone her. I believe, hey, when Jesus rode in the dirt, this is my opinion, it scared these boys that had rocks in their hands. And I believe the Lord wrote their name out and wrote their sin out right beside it. The next thing you know, Jesus looks up 
and there's no men standing there with no rocks in their hands. Now he says, no woman, where are the accusers? She says, well, they're gone. He says, all right, because you have humbled yourself and repented, I'm not going to condemn you. Just go sin no more. So Jesus absolutely stops a woman. Listen, there was an Iranian woman who saw another woman stoned to death because of adultery, because of Islam's laws. And somebody was, gave her a Bible. You hear me. I'm talking about a Muslim woman in a strict Muslim country. And she happened to read the story in the Farsi language. That's the language they speak of the woman in adultery and how Jesus forgave her. The Muslim woman said, my religion does not forgive sinners. My religion judges and kills sinners. This Jesus, who is he? That will forgive somebody who has sinned like that. And today she's a believer. Come on, somebody. Full of the word and full of faith because she found a God, my, 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 that can take the shame away. Peter denied the Lord three times, but on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me more than these? And God allowed this man who put a self-curse on himself, who denied the Lord, and who was so arrogant in his own attitude, he allowed him on the day of Pentecost to be the preacher that saw 3,000 souls won to the Lord and made him the head of the Jewish branch of the Christian church throughout the New Testament until he passed away. God took his shame away. Lord, I want to preach this for a minute. See, all those disciples knew Peter had denied the Lord. I know how people think, well, you know what, guys? I just don't think Peter should really be in this thing because obviously he's unstable. One minute he follows the Lord, the next minute he don't. So I just think if anybody is going to be ahead of this, we just need to, among the 11 of us, remember Judas is dead now, among the 11 of us, we need to select a leader. So what does Jesus do? Watch carefully. Jesus shows up and they know he's denied the Lord three times. So Jesus said, do you love me more than these? Yes. Do you love me more than these? Yes. Do you love me more than these? And after Peter said yes the third time, it was Jesus saying to these guys, now this is not how it's in the Bible, but I'm telling you, I know enough about Judaism, the rabbinical, uh, the, the rabbi approaching the student who has failed, etc. And when he approaches the student who has failed in the class to give the confession of the love for the Torah and the love for God, it means now boys shut up. So he covered for Peter. He covered the shame part. He got rid of the shame, but he's also saying to the disciples, don't you ever bring up again what this man did because he's still my man. Oh, Lord, I felt something fly by when I said that. He's still my man. He might be stupid, but he's still my man. He might have said something dumb with his mouth, but he's still my man. And I'm going to use him to preach a message that's going to get 3,000 people saved on Pentecost. So then how does God handle John? How, does, how did they handle John Mark? This is one of the neatest stories in the Bible. Paul is in Rome. Paul's going to be beheaded shortly. And Paul knows he's at the end of his life. And you know what Paul says? He writes in this book. Man, this has always touched me every time I talk about it. He said, bring John Mark, who is profitable for me for ministry. In Acts, he's sending him home. But at the end of his life, he says, bring him on. Because I need him. In every one of these cases, there's shame involved with what happened. And in every one of these cases, the Lord himself, through the word or through the spirit, comes down 
and says to the people, you're not what your past says. You are what you are right now at this moment and what you will be in the future. See, let me, let me talk about this shame. Fear not. You shall not be ashamed, neither confounded and depressed. For you shall, not, you shall not be put to shame. Isaiah 54, 4, I'm sorry. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and you shall not seriously remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Isaiah 61 and verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will have double honor. How do you like that? That, mean, that means instead of being shamed, God will exalt you. I want to say this real quick. I'll not name the man. You, you may not know him, but I had a very dear friend of mine who burnt himself out, who before this story came out, looked at me in a car and said, I, my nerves, my fingers on my hands are pins and needles. I, my flesh, I, he said, I, it, I'm on fire with, with my nerves. I said, you are in adrenal failure. And I said, I have a friend of mine, a preacher who went through adrenal failure. And when you go through the failure you're in, you got four options. And I told him all four options. And the last one, believe it or not, was suicide. You're going to be tempted to commit suicide. And I said, you're so bad. Stop everything you're doing and at least take a week or two and get away from everything to get your body renewed. Or you're going to have problems. And he did. He had an issue. And he had to step down from his great church. But that man was so humble before God. He was before, in my opinion. But that man was so humble before God and broken before God because he wanted to do the right thing. That today, now you listen to me, he has a bigger ministry reaching more people and more preachers than he had before. Now, it wasn't the fact that what he did created the opportunity for bigger it was how he handled it that created the opportunity for bigger. And, is everybody still here? And God says, for your shame, I'll give you double. All right. So instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joys, joy shall be theirs. Now, I like what one guy said. They came to Paul and they said, Now, Paul... You have murdered people. This is when he first got saved. I took a course at Lee University, didn't know all this. But when Paul first got saved, he was a persecutor of Christians. He consented to the death of Stephen. He had papers to arrest Christians. And he even admitted in the Bible, I killed some and put a bunch of them in jail. Now he gets saved and who believes he's saved? This is the guy that's after. They thought he got saved to infiltrate the church to get all the names of the secret underground churches so that he could persecute them. Now, nobody believes he's saved. So then they start saying, Paul, you killed people and you murdered people. How can you even get up and preach? And you know what Paul said? Paul said, I've wronged no man. What? You just lied. <laughs> liar, 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 liar. You kill people. And here was his key. No, you don't understand. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching for the things that are before, I press toward the mark. He, he, he would say it this way if he was preaching to you. That Paul is dead. That Paul's dead. Yeah, you're looking, at, you're looking at Paul, but that was Saul. Saul's dead. Paul's alive now. So you can look at people. Oh, Jesus, help me. You can look at people that know your background. How many of you know some people know your background? 
I'm going to go ahead and preach this here. How many of you know some, mm -hmm, how many of you moms and dads know your kids ain't heard all your testimony? And I'm going to tell you why your kids have not heard all your testimony. You don't want them to get justified to do what you did that was dumb. Yeah, mom, but you did it. Yeah, dad, but you did it. Oh, y'all are just smiling out there. You know what I'm talking about. So somebody come to me and they're being a smart aleck years ago. I preached a message on skeletons in your closet and, 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 and brought a skeleton out. It's a real cool. You know what? I ought to go back and pull some of the old crazy stuff I preached out 20 years ago and show it on TV. Y'all wouldn't believe it, man. It was crazy. And so some, somebody come to me and they were being a smart aleck. They didn't mean it sincere. They said, Perry Stone mm -hmm. called to preach when you were a kid, huh? Yep. Uh-huh. Caught. Yeah. 16, right? Yeah. First message. Yeah. Yeah, traveled when you was 18, 19, huh? Yeah. Oh, I just wonder if there's anything in your past that you don't want known. I said, well, I'm not going to tell you because then it would be known because you tell everybody. <laughs> Big mouth. I said, yeah, yeah, there sure is. There's some stuff. Well, what would you do if somebody ever found out about it and brought it up? I'd say, well, I'd tell them they're dragging skeletons out of my closet that's locked up, but there's blood on those bones. Oh, somebody's going to get this in a minute. They got the blood of Jesus on it. I'll feel the Holy Ghost. Can I go tell you something? When you ask Jesus to forgive you, you can't be any more forgiven than the moment you're forgiven. You can't be any more delivered than the moment you're delivered. And your name can't be in the book of life any more than when your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And somebody who's been through some shame ought to shout and praise God right now that the blood of Jesus Christ is able... Woo! Come on, I got some ex-heathen in this house that are glad that Jesus saves, he delivers, and he sets free. And I got some Christians in the house that ought to be glad. I got one more thing to tell you. I'm almost done. Here's the third thing that will cause a person to quit and give up is disappointment. Appointment means an assigned role for purpose. Appointment. I have an appointment. There's an assigned role. There's something I'm assigned to. There's a destination. Disappointment means disruption of the appointment. Now, we know disappointment's an emotion. Disappointment, disappointment creates a sadness. But the word disappointment means to disrupt the appointment. Because your disappointments come from disruptions in your purposes, your plans, and things that you want to do. Uh, for example, expectation is the breeding ground for miracles. If you all will come at 4 and 6 o'clock tonight with heavy expectations, you'll be shocked at what will happen. I'm going to be sitting in this chair. It's Perry Stone Unleashed. I always wait till the, listen, I wait till the last night to go crazy because I have to conserve my voice. My voice is doing good, praise God. In Acts 3, the crippled man looked to the people expecting to receive from them. Guess what happened? He got a miracle when Peter prayed because he expected something to happen. Here's what we do. We minimize expectations to guard against the appointments. That was a tweet moment right there in case you didn't get it. Let me just say it again. We minimize expectations 
to guard against disappointments. So what does that mean? That means if I'm going to a service and I know God should show up, if I lower my expectations and nothing great happens, I'm not disappointed. But if I have high expectations, and see, I have people play expect, place expectations on me. I've got people who the whole conference, they want me to preach prophecy. And I will preach. I did the other night, as you know, the other day. But see, then what happens is, well, I was just so disappointed because he didn't tell me if the Antichrist was alive. <laughs> I was just so disappointed because he didn't tell me who the next president's going to be. You want me to tell you who the next president's going to be? You really want me to tell you? I don't know. Thought I'd tell you that. I have no clue. I got a word from God on three presidents in a row, knew who they were going to be and knew what their patterns were. I ain't got nothing on this one. I don't know what that means, by the way. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know what it means. All right, expectations. So what do we do? We, we lower our expectations because we have friends who have betrayed us. We have ministers that we've lost confidence in. We pray to God for something to happen and it didn't happen. And now we're a little bit angry and we're a little disappointed at God. And we've had friends. My wife on two occasions had friends. Now, they didn't do anything immoral. It wasn't that. But they betrayed her. They betrayed her confidence because they wanted to act like they were important in the eyes of other people. And so my wife went through a spell. This is the true story where she had one good friend, Sylvia Hooks, still her good friend. And she didn't have nobody. No, she didn't have no other friends. She said, I'm just tired of me getting hurt. Because my wife said... You can hurt me once, okay, but you ain't going to hurt me twice. And that's just how, y'all women are nodding. Is that, how many of you women, must, that must be a woman thing or something, all right? You know. <laughs> all right. But if, if in your life, I want to say this to you, and this is true, and I'm almost done, but if in your life, if in your life, old Robert said this to Ron Carpenter, if in your life you come to the end of it, and you can find five friends who never betrayed you, who kept your secrets, who loved you unconditionally. Roberts, how sad, how sad a man like old Roberts would say this. You have done a great success in your life to just have five. Five. Isn't that amazing? A lot of people may call you friend, but they're going to disappoint you. Please remember this disappointments will come throughout your life. And there are times you can't do one thing about it. But here's what I want to say to you. You can't let it knock you out of this race. You can't let it. What's the key? I love the story I'm about to tell. Here's your key. For isolation, here's your key for the disappointments. Here's your key for shame. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings as an eagle. The word wait in Hebrew means to twist together and thread a garment. It actually means a weaver's beam to take threads and weave a real beautiful garment together. So it means to weave yourself. But how do you weave yourself by waiting? You, we you weave yourself into God's presence and God's presence being woven into you. My soul, wait thou only upon God for my expectation is from him. Psalm 62 verse 5. 
expectations is the Hebrew word tikva, and it means a cord or an attachment to something. So when I am in expectations, my expectations has been attached to something. So if, here's the thing. If my expectations are in God, it does not mean God answers every prayer the way you want it. And I'm going to tell you, you better thank God he don't answer the prayer because the guy you prayed for that you wanted to marry ended up being a weirdo. And so God kept you from him and you got mad at God because he walked out of your life, but now you're thankful to God. Come on, I was engaged to marry a girl one time and I thank God about every month of my life. When I look at my foxy little wife from Alabama with her little Alabama accent, I thank God about every month. Thank God I didn't get the other one. Hallelujah to Jesus. Really, I'm very serious. I'm not just playing a game, but these guys on the front row know my story. So what I'm saying is expectations. Now the word wait is from the root word, which is the same root of expectation. So watch this. It doesn't mean wait on the Lord. Lord, I'm going to wait on you. <sighs> 10 minutes goes by. All right, hurry up. An hour goes by. It's been an hour. I'm waiting on you. It's not what it means. The word means to enter into God's presence with an expectation. Weave your desire of what you need from him into his presence, his presence comes into you. Because I'm going to tell you something. This is a fact. You go spend one hour alone with God. If you got to turn on praise and worship music in your house and shut the door, just with you and God, or get in your car, you like to drive through the mountains, walk on the beach with your headset on, do something, spend one hour with God, and I'm telling you, it'll change your whole attitude and your whole situation. All that junk in you, you'll start feeling the renewal of the Holy Spirit come. All right. I'm going to tell you a story, and then we're going to pray for you. There was a man by the name of Bobby Thompson from the East Coast who did a series years ago on eagles. And he did such in-depth research on eagles that a Cherokee Indian from the Cherokee Reservation down in North Carolina went to hear him preach and came to him and said, for a white preacher from this, from this part of the country, you know more about eagles than almost anybody. But he said, in all your three nights messages of preaching, you never got into the moping period. That's called molting, but he called it the moping period of an eagle. And Bobby said, well, what are you talking about? He said, if you will let me come pick you up, I'll get a Jeep. I'm going to take you down to the mountains of, of uh, the Smoky Mountains in the heart of it to a certain area that I have known all my life. And I'm going to show you something you ain't going to believe and you'll be preaching on this the rest of your life. So they got together and real early in the morning, it was kind of the dust, the breaking. They get in the Jeep, they go to a certain place and they park and they got to go down at this real rugged trail and they got to go all the way uh, to the bottom of the trail. Okay, they get down there and there's this opening in this Cherokee wilderness uh, Smoky Mountains, and there's 27 little crosses that are in real neat order, and they're in this big, this small field, but they're scattered out in real neat order. And he said, good gracious, what is this? He said, this is the Eagle Graveyard. The Eagle Graveyard. He said, he said, I've buried every one of these personally for many, many years. He said, this is my home territory. He said, I know these mountains like the back of my hand. And he said, every one of these birds, they're eagles, and they've died in this wilderness. He said, did they die of old age? He said, no, I'm going to show you something. Then they went over to another area, and this is what they saw. Bobby said there were five eagles that had been walking on the ground. You could even see that on their claws, there was different places where they had been scratched, and there was what looked like dried blood. Their beaks, there was a calcium deposit. Their heads were hanging over, and there are five of them standing there, and they're just like they're not doing anything. They're just, they're just like almost they're dying. 
And so he says, good gracious preacher. He said, uh, uh, the preacher said to him, said, what is this? He said, here's what happened. These eagles were intended to fly. When they fly, the air friction keeps their beak smoothed. When they fly, they have a covering over their eye that comes down, but it keeps the eye moist. He said, we don't know why they do it, but they get to a certain age where they quit flying and they come down here and start walking like a chicken or a turkey. And they just stay down here so long that they quit eating, they don't eat, and they lose strength. And to try to fly back up to their, their rock, they can't do it. He said, so they are going to die. He said, oh, no, no, not all of them. He said, but that's why I brought you here. I know what's about to happen. And I know this is a story about birds, man. But I see people in this every time I tell it. They go up. They said, it's not going to happen unless we go into a little bit of a hiding. So they go up, back up the mountain. And he gets on a little ledge with binoculars. And he says, now here's your pair. Here's my pair. Now watch what you're about to see. And they wait. Sun is breaking. Sun comes up. And all of a sudden, they see these eagles coming from the mountains and guess how many there are? Five of them. And they got something in their claws. They'd been hunting. And they watch as they come and they circle and they get in a circle and they start circling and they start circling right over top of those five. Then they start dropping the squirrel or the rabbit, whatever they had, right in front of these birds. And then they start screaming like an eagle does, making a noise. And they keep circling and they keep circling. And when they left, he said, now we can go back down here if you want and kind of observe. Two of the birds ate. They reached over and they were biting that meat and eating it. Three of them just laid there and did nothing. He said, what is going to happen? He said, well, the only way for me to show you, it's going to take a couple days. I'll come get you. You tell me where you're going to be. And they set it up. Time went by. And they go back. When they went back, there were 30 crosses. Three more were added. The birds that didn't eat died. He said, okay, now what about the other two? He said, I'm going to show you something. He said, he said now look, I know you're from here and I know you know a lot about these eagles. But what you're you going to show me the other two? He said, yeah. He said, you're making this up. He said, look, I'm not making this up. He said, because an eagle... When it's born on a rock, stays on that same rock and will die on that rock. He said, I've named all these birds. I know as much about these birds as I do about my family. We're Cherokee Indians. We've lived here all of our life. We know this territory. He said, just come on the cliff with me. And they got up on the cliff. And all of a sudden, sun comes up. It's a beautiful day. He said, I want you to look. There's, you see there's an opening right over here on, on that mountain, right on that mountain there. Just watch. You're going to see it in a minute. And an eagle came out, of a, come out of the cliff, just came out there and just stood. He said, now, preacher, that was one of those eagles that was in the valley. He said, well, he, look, he looks good now. He said, oh, yeah, he looks good. He said, I want you to zoom in. He had high-powered binoculars. Zoom in on the face and focus right now. He said, what do you see? He says, he looks like he's crying. He says he is. Because when he got in the wilderness that he dries up a little bit around the eye, but once he gets back up where the wind is and that co coating comes back over and that covering comes, he said the wind hits him and he can start getting water again in his eyes and he's not really crying, but look at his beak. Can you see? 
And he said, all of a sudden, that eagle screamed and started flapping his wings. And he hit the wind. And the weird thing was, when he went, hit the wind screaming, you could hear the other eagles in different places screaming back at him. And the Indian jumped up and said, fly. Get up and fly. You were born to fly. you somewhere in your life you're going to hit that spot and somewhere in your life you're going to either eat and keep pressing and you're going to end up back on the cliff in the presence or you're not going to eat and you're going to quit and I want to say this because I've got to pray right now because I feel a real stirring in my heart I want everyone that the enemy, and you know it's the enemy, has just started throwing into your mind, quit, give up, not worth it. Look at how people disappoint you. Why serve God? You're, you're as good as everybody else who says they're a Christian. There are people here right now who need to come down here and ask God to renew you and pick you back up. I'm not going to, I'm not begging, pleading, or doing anything else but say it. You are free to stand up and come down here right now all over this building in the name of Jesus. You know who you are. You, the enemy, has put this against you, but God is here to encourage you. I feel an encouraging spirit here today. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.